Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 28, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment, news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K., We hope you all had a chance to join us on YouTube last week as we celebrated the birthday of Audrey Hepburn with a special In the Mix at the Bay Street Bistro dedicated to Audrey's first starring role and first Oscar win, Roman Holiday, co-starring Gregory Peck. Dalton Trumbo wrote Peck's role with Cary Grant in mind, but Grant and Hepburn wouldn't make a film together until 1963's Charade, 10 years later. And despite only appearing in one film together, they shared a special friendship. Hepburn said of Grant, I had this great affection for him because I knew he understood me. It was an unspoken friendship, which was wonderful. He would open up his arms wide when he saw you and hug you and smile and let you know how he felt about you. Cary Grant understood Hepburn, but did he understand himself? The man board Archibald Leach is one of the most revered and adored actors and leading men in the 20th century, yet he spent decades creating and maintaining the brilliant disguise that was Cary Grant. Our guest today is the best-selling author of the new biography, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise, Scott Iman. Scott is the author or co-author of 15 books, including biographies of John Wayne, Cecil B. DeMille, Louis B. Mayer, John Ford, and Henry Fonda, and James Stewart. According to Douglas K. Daniel of the Associated Press, Iman's new book is, quote, the most entertaining and enlightening star biography in years. And Louis Bayard of the Washington Post called it an estimable and empathetic biography. And Scott joins us now from his home in West Palm Beach, Florida. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Scott, I, I found a phrase in your introduction that seemed uh, to encapsulate the theme of your book and my understanding of Archie Leach's transformation into Cary Grant uh, really well. Uh, you said his specific genius was to project a consistent image of style and grace with a little something extra. So he, he certainly accomplished the former. Uh, he was the epitome of Hollywood gentleman. But what about that, quote unquote, little something extra? What is and and continues to be so magnetic and interesting about Cary Grant? Well, when he plays drama, I think there's always an element of irony present. And when he plays comedy, there's always an element of desperation present. He's always there's always a counterbalance to what the prevailing tone of the piece is. He's never just one thing. He's not projecting just one thing. There are overtones and there are undertones in in the best Cary Grant movies. And it doesn't have anything to do with the script. It's not necessarily the way it's written, the way the character's written. It's the way the character's played. And he understood that an actor is an independent contractor. And the dialogue is one thing, but what an actor projects has to be more than just saying the dialogue and hitting the marks. And I think that's what people respond to because he seems... On the one hand, he's got classic good looks of that era of Hollywood, where everybody was good looking, basically. If you weren't good looking, you were a character actor. All the stars were great looking. Uh, On the one hand, he's great looking. On the other hand, he seems very modern because of his ability to shift uh, uh, between dark notes and light notes. Yeah, I was watching uh, a few months ago, I watched North by Northwest, and I remember wondering or asking myself, what is it about Cary Grant that makes him so special? What is it about... Uh, him that makes him special to me. And, and I started to think, and during, you know, to your point, during the uh, his career, there was no shortage of masculinity in Hollywood. I mean, good looking guys, there, there was a lot of uh, kind of these, you know, masculine kind of strong uh, men. 
and almost a dime a dozen, you know, every actor, handsome, you know, very masculine. So he has a sort of, I guess, self-deprecating humility, humor, a sensibility that, that he brought to his work. And you mentioned in, in, in your book that a lot of people, the audience would see him as a member of their extended family, not just as an actor, which allowed him to get away with certain things in his personal life that other actors might not have. But along the lines of his acting style, and I just watched His Girl Friday uh, the other night as well, and, and noticed you know, the improv with you know, using the leech name, his real name as, you know, the guy, you know, he got his, his throat cut and, and all of that. But so how, what do you think helped shape that unique style of acting and that connection that he had to the audience like that? Was it his vaudeville experience? Was it just his innate personality? No, it wasn't his innate personality. It was, it was incremental. If you look at Cary Grant's early movies from 1932, 33, 34, he's painfully he doesn't seem to know what to do. He's there. He knows he's good looking, uh, but he doesn't seem to know what to do or how to project or what is expected of him. He's sort of like, I think I describe him as a sort of eight by 10 glossy in motion. Uh, he's afraid to express anything. Uh, interestingly, I was re- just a couple of days ago, I came across an interview with Charlie Chaplin from 1966. And, and they were talking of the, 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 it was a Q&A, long transcript, and it was a Q&A, and, and the interviewer brought up acting and getting in touch with personality, and the sub- name Cary Grant comes up, and, and Chaplin uh, says that how, refers to how self-conscious he was, uh, and then he, he said, and he, then he broke through, he says, which happens sometimes, and Chaplin knew exactly what happened, in that he, A, he figured out something more had to be added to the mix other than just looking six foot two and gorgeous and looking great in a tux. Something else had to be projected. Otherwise there was, he was going no place fast because even in that era, it, actors, even an actor as handsome as Clark Gable projected uh, a kind of uh, 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 alley cat masculinity and a good humor, you know, that transcended whatever part he was playing. It was a continuum of if it wasn't written in the script, Gable would bring it as a in part as part of the performance, but that was uh, uh, ongoing from the early '30s to Gable's death at the mis- with the Misfits, and I think the baseline for Grant's sense of his performance was his physical self confidence because he was trained as an acrobat and he was a professional acrobat and a very high end professional acrobat. He knew he could trust his body; he could do things with his body that other actors simply can't do because very few actors have that kind of physical training. So that was the, 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 the foundation, the cement foundation. And then he got lucky and he got a part or two that actually demanded he bring something that resonated with his own personal experience of life in Sylvia Scarlet, directed by George Cukor. And he's got a good director. Cukor is not somebody who just has the actors do what the script tells them to do. Cukor could talk to actors and draw them out and give them a sense of self-confidence far more than most directors of that period uh, who were, for the most part, uh, picture shooters. You know, they, they didn't really work with actors much. Cukor loved working with actors. And Grant's performance in Sylvia Scarlet is that of a kind of a sharper cockney who's a little bit angry about the position life has put him in and a determined to do better. And at the same time, he's got a level of self-awareness about who he is and what his gifts are. 
And he knows that there's a certain amount of hustle that he's going to have to apply if he's going to be a success in life. And that directly related to uh, Archie Leach's experience of life. You know, there's an anger there. There's a frustration there. There's a certain class-based consciousness of the fact that he was born with two strikes against him and that he would have to find a way around uh, uh, that if he was going to be a success in life. And he could access that anger easily because he had a part that actually he could relate to, a character that had similarities to his own character, and a director who would encourage him to bring himself to the part, which other directors hadn't been doing because there was no similarity between uh, Archie Leach and the parts he'd been playing. They were simply uh, 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 second string Paramount castoffs that Gary Cooper turned down or that Frederick March turned down. And there's no reason Cary Grant should have been playing parts that Gary Cooper could play or Frederick March could play. But nobody was writing Cary Grant parts until he lucked into uh, Sylvia Scarlett on a loan out to RKO. You talk about the similarities between Grant and Chaplin in their early lives, the, the strikes against them, the, the, a psychological reference, as you say. They both had detached moms, alcoholic fathers, a kind of an untethered childhood led to a fascination with, um, you know, the escape of music and film. And it reminded me of Marlon Brando's childhood, um, as described in his autobio with Robert Lindsay, Songs My Mother Taught Me. In your experience as a biographer, are people like Grant and Brando and Chaplin the exception or the rule for other celebrities you provide, I mean, profiled, is there something inherently or uniquely damaged about most actors that draws them into that profession? If you spend your life playing people other than yourself, it presupposes a certain dissatisfaction with who you regard as yourself, as your own personality, as your own background. You're looking for alternate lives, alternate personalities to inhabit, even if only on a temporary basis. Now, you could you could justify it intellectually by saying it, it gives me a different vantage point to regard uh, the, the human the human condition and and my own place in the human condition and and help me redefine my strengths and my weaknesses and et cetera et cetera et cetera. But still, the baseline is I need to find something somebody else to be because I'm not particularly satisfied with who I actually am. And I think that uh, there are exceptions. There are numerous exceptions people who are comfortable in their own skin, actors who are comfortable in their own skin. And they project someone uh, that seems to be like who they actually are, whether that's who they actually are or not. We don't really know. Their, hus <laughs> their husbands or their wives would know how close that projection is to, to who they actually are. Uh, but they've mastered the art of appearing to be the same person off camera that they appear to be on camera. That doesn't necessarily mean they're that person. So yeah, I think there's a certain aura of wish fulfillment in any uh, in any show business career that is defined by a personality that is uh, uh, definitively not necessarily the identical personality that people at home see compared to the uh, personality that people in the audience see. Interesting. One of, one of my favorite stories in your in your book that I've heard recounted. Um, outside of the book as well is, is a Michael Caine story. It's Michael Caine and Cary Grant standing outside of the Beverly Hills Hotel. A lady walks up to them, recognizes Michael Caine, who, you know, as, as a side note, uh, Matt and I, huge Michael Caine fans as well. She looks at Michael Caine and said, you know, I've been here for, uh, I think, two weeks and you're the first celebrity I've seen. <laughs> and she looks over at Cary Grant as if he's just an average person and says, you just don't see stars in Hollywood, do you? And he's replied, no, ma'am, you don't. 
And <laughs> this was this was part of his retirement. And it is and, and you describe his retirement as being the best of both worlds. He was still famous and yet he could live his retired life on his own terms. Is that right. something that throughout his life that he wanted to try to maintain control of, uh, of how people viewed him or, or what they thought of him or just that kind of control? Sure. Look at, look at once he establishes who he is as an actor, he works. There are a few exceptions where he will, where he steps outside of that, but there aren't too many exceptions. You can count them on one hand, basically the parts where he, 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 he leaves Cary Grant behind none, but the lonely heart, perhaps notorious, perhaps suspicion uh, a few times, but basically he colors within the lines uh, for the rest of his career. There's a reason he does that. It's because he found something that the audience wanted to buy. And even though I think he felt occasionally frustrated by his self-imposed limitations, I think he needed that security. He needed the emotional security because his entire, the first uh, basic 30 years of his life, he had no security. He didn't have any emotional security. He didn't have any financial security. It was a very psychological hand to mouth existence. And that's a long time to be tap dancing, wondering if you're going to be able to pay the rent, you know? And once he finally found that personality that resonated with the public, he was not about to cast it aside in the pursuit of uh, 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 self-realization. He, he, he clung to it very. And I mean, I, the book, I go into some of the parts he turned down. The most famous example, of course, is Norman Maine and the Judy Garland version of The Star is Born, which he could have played magnificently. Uh, he also turned down Harry Lyme in The Third Man, which he could have played magnificently. He turned down half a dozen parts that would have made his career an entirely different career than it is than what we're talking about now. Would it have been a better career? Not necessarily. It just would have been a different career. It would have been a more overtly ambitious career. Uh, and he turned him down. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. With Stars Born, I suspect he didn't want to get involved in the Judy Garland Mishigas because she had a long history of, of train wreck productions in back of her and emotional uh, uh, issues. And I don't think he wanted to get anywhere near anybody else's emotional issues. He had enough of his own and he had enough with his mother. <laughs> you know, he wanted clarity in, in the people he worked with. He wanted relaxation in the people he worked with, and he wanted quiet competence in the people he worked with. That's why he, he gravitated towards Alfred Hitchcock or, or uh, 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 Leo McCary, uh, directors who kept a, a fairly light tone on the set, and there was no Sturm und Drang, and there were no raised voices. He didn't want that. Yeah, you talk about that early in the book with Marlene Dietrich, one of his early yeah. projects where she was just so much chaos. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Sternberg, Sternberg and Dietrich, that was a psychodrama being played out on a daily basis. And he was completely unprepared for what he walked into. And where, where, he's, where Sternberg is, is, is very curt at his best day, he was curt. On his worst day, he was a sadistic SOP. And Grant had no experience of that at all. And I, I mean, he must have been just, uh, he must have pulled in every antenna he had just trying <laughs> to get through it alive, you know. He just wasn't, he was not that guy that was going to enjoy jousting with people on a film set. Uh, he loathed working for Michael Curtiz, who was a yeller, you know, and that's why he turned down Billy Wilder every time Wilder asked him to do a film, even films that he could have done easily. He could have played uh, Love in the Afternoon easily. He could have played Sabrina easily. Mm -hmm. uh, he turned down Wilder. He turned down One, Two, Three. He turned down Billy Wilder every time Wilder offered him a script, not because Wilder was a bastard, but Wilder had sharp elbows. You know, he would he could be cutting verbally cutting 
on a set and, and Grant wouldn't get anywhere near that. He just had a horror of confrontation and of emotional aggression. Well, we love talking to our uh, authors on the show. And two weeks ago, we had the pleasure of interviewing your friend and ours, Robert Bader. Next week, we'll be joined by his wife and our guest from episode 19, Tracy Gossel, to talk about her book, The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks. Now, Grant became friends with the junior Douglas Fairbanks after they appeared in Gunga Din in 39. But an uh, interesting story early in the book, he had an interaction with Douglas Fairbanks Sr., uh, while he was still Archie on his first voyage to the U.S. on a shuffleboard court. Now, Grant became a paragon of fashion and style, and it seems that some of this may have stemmed from Fairbanks. Can you tell us about that interaction and and uh, Fairbanks' influence on Grant? Well, it was uh, it was 1920. Archie Leach was coming over on the boat, the Olympia, from London to New York to begin uh, his American vaudeville career. He'd already been working in uh, uh, English vaudeville for a couple of years at that point. And he and the troupe were coming over on the Olympia to New York. Also on the boat were Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford coming back from their honeymoon, uh, European honeymoon, which I think had gone on for six weeks. And like every other young male around the world, Grant thought Douglas Fairbanks was the bee's knees because he had, he had the, he had vivacity. He was uh, a physically a marvelous specimen, very muscular. Great personality, great joie de vie, great humor. You couldn't help but love him. Archie found Grant on board. And of course, Grant was in the in the captain's cabin and Archie was, you know, somewhere in third class. But at one point, Archie did uh, uh, find Fairbanks on on the deck and got a picture taken with him and chatted with him for a few minutes. And the pictures in the book of 16 year old Archie and Doug Fairbanks on his, coming back from his honeymoon. And it's a great photo. And Archie treasured the photo all his life. But what impressed him about Fairbanks was, A, his approachability, which I might add that when Archie became Carrie, he was not the most approachable person yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the general public. That didn't happen. But Fairbanks was extremely gregarious. And his noblesse oblige that Fairbanks had absorbed uh, a great deal of e social ease and comfort along with success, along with money. It didn't barricade him behind uh, uh, the door, he was perfectly happy to, to share it with, with the people whenever he ran into them. Uh, and he was also impressed by Fairbanks' clothes. And to well into uh, Cary Grant's 80s, he would talk about how Fairbanks dressed. And the, because Fairbanks dressed in English style, okay? Fairbanks' tailors were all Savile Row. So Archie, growing up in Bristol, Savile Row, it might have well as has been Monaco, as far as he was concerned. He, he had no knowledge at all of Savile Row fashions, except what he saw uh, people wearing. But when he saw Fairbanks, uh, who was short, Fairbanks was about five foot seven, but he looked like he was six feet. He carried himself like he was six feet and he dressed like a god. Uh, he was very impressed by that. And, and, and uh, all his life, once he got successful. Cary Grant uh, basically used English English tailors. And when he didn't use English tailors, he would have American tailors do knockoffs of English styles. OK, but it was usually the English cut. He really liked the English cut. That's interesting. You mentioned the approachability. You referenced that a few times in your book, what Cary Grant thought of autograph seekers and, and things like that. It was uh, enlightening to to see that side of him. Yeah. 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 He was very, he, he would ask, he would ask people to give him a dollar for an autograph, you know, and of course people would, oh, you know, they're, cause they're not used to that and they would back off and that would be what he wanted to do in the first place. I think he was insecure. He could flip on Cary Grant yeah. on and off mm -hmm. and people expected him to be what he was on screen. And he could flip that on when he wanted to, 
but he didn't always want to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes you just want to go to the store and get a pack of cigarettes. But that's when you're a celebrity on that level. That's the reality. That's the reality. And he didn't have a lot of people around him. He didn't have personal assistants like they have today and all that. Generally, you know, if, if an actor had to do that sort of thing, they had to go to the store themselves. Or if they, maybe if they had a cook or a chef at the house, the chef would go pick up something they needed along at the grocery store. But, you know, Grant lived a fairly low-key, circumspect life. So going out in public was not easy for him psychologically or practically. Something that I wonder, um, and it's a story you tell at the beginning of the book about when he was doing his one-man show, he would get requests for autographs. And instead of autographs, he would actually welcome people to come up to the front of the stage and, right. and shake hands. And right. that seems like even more of a personal thing than just write an autograph quick. You don't even have to make eye contact, bam, and away you go. I wonder if the autograph made him feel cheap or like a commodity, like a product, maybe, because that, that juxtaposition I found really interesting. It is interesting. But also, you got to remember that the, it's the difference between when he was an active star and there were just dozens and dozens of demands upon him every day to when he was retired and basically able to pick and choose when he would go out in public and when he would be seen right. by the public. Those uh, appearances he was making the last four or five years of his life, he chose to do those because I think they were great reassurance to him that what he had done mattered and that people still cared about what he had done as an actor and what he had accomplished as an actor. Because let's face it, if you're a movie star and you're off the screen, there's another dozen movie stars that come on up because that's the business the movie or movies are in. And some of the people are authentic stars and some of the people have no business being in front of a movie camera. Uh, but he did have, but I think doing those shows, and I was at one of those shows, he did, a, he did a, one of those appearances in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, this was in 1984 or five. And I went to the show and it was really interesting. It, he didn't say anything that was particularly revelatory because the questions, he got the same questions night after night, you know, uh, who is your favorite leading lady? What's it like to kiss Grace Kelly? Those kinds of questions. And he would, he would answer them with good humor, but it was interesting to see how relaxed he was when relaxation was not something, not a word often used in relation to Cary Grant, except in front of the movie camera. Off camera, he could be a nervous wreck. Yeah. Uh, but in his retirement, the pressure was off. He didn't have anything left to prove. He didn't have to worry about uh, his money uh, disappearing. He had all the money he could ever spend for another generation, actually. Uh, he could relax. You know, the pressure was off. And he could, he could flip Cary Grant on. And that's basically what he gave what he gave the audience. But by that time, the performance had become the man to a much greater extent in 1984 or five than it had been in 1945, let's say, you know, when it was much more of a performance. Hmm. Doing it on his own terms. Exactly. And he was choosing to do it. And it wasn't about money because most of the money went to charity. He got expenses. It was about reminding the audience and reminding himself how much they meant to each other. And I think he found it very rewarding because I think he was a little leery of the audience for most of his career. And it was only later in retrospect, thinking about it, that, it, that he realized that there was a reciprocal uh, relationship going on and that he had perhaps undervalued all those people who had, uh, had gone faithfully to see Cary Grant movies for 35 years. Well, I want to talk a minute about leading ladies. You mentioned Grace Kelly. 
And Cary Grant was married five times. And a, and a lot of times is just associated with various leading ladies that he's had throughout his career. Uh, one that comes to mind that I uh, especially enjoyed that I watched a few months ago was Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House with Myrna Loy. And I, I thought it was a fun film. I thought the chemistry between the two of them was just fantastic. You quote him, uh, Cary Grant is saying in the book, acting is like playing ball. You toss the ball and some people don't toss it back. Some people don't even catch it. But when you get somebody who catches it and tosses it back, that's really what acting is about, which is what he found with, with Marina Loy. Mm-hmm. He worked with a great number of leading ladies. I, I know he's been, he, he was outspoken about his Mae West. He wasn't all that fond of. Uh, right. but on the other end of the spectrum, you had, like you mentioned, Grace Kelly, mm-hmm. which, which I think has always been what he said is one of his favorite, if not his uh, favorite leading ladies. Now, considering that he's worked with so many and the chemistry except for a few exceptions, was really fantastic. Uh, did he adjust the way he acted, or uh, did he do anything differently depending on who his leading lady or co-star was? His attitude towards an actress was largely dependent less on their acting and more on what they were as a person. He liked His favorite actress, he always said, was Grace. I don't think she was the best actress he ever worked with, frankly. But he liked her. He liked Grace Kelly because he said she really listened and if you if you threw in an ad lib, she could she could match it and not turn to the director and said that, that's not in the script. <laughs> you know, that's what that's what drove him up the wall. Uh, and she was she had no particular airs about her as a person. You know, she just showed up. And then the, when she went into makeup and came out as Grace Kelly, he loved Ingrid Bergman for the same reason. Ingrid Bergman would come in to the studio with her hair tied back with a shoelace and she'd put the costume on and they do the hair and she'd come out. And she was Ingrid Bergman. But she that's not who she was, who she she was all she was all about the seriousness of the work. She was a serious actress and he respected that. So his his response to them as actors, he he wanted them to be more than more, more women than actress, I think, in his head. Our guest today is best-selling author Scott Iman. Coming up, we'll hear more about Scott's journey as a journalist and author and his other biographies of famous actors and directors from the golden age of Hollywood. We'll be right back. Heilman and Haver. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is May 14th, the birthday of both George Lucas and Robert Zemeckis. The two men were classmates at the University of Southern California School of Cinema and gained renown as directors, producers, and screenwriters. Zemeckis best known for Back to the Future and Forrest Gump, and Lucas for Indiana Jones and a little franchise called Star Wars. Well, if you want to be the next Robert Zemeckis or George Lucas or have aspirations in this realm, don't miss your chance to enter the 2021 West Sound Film Festival taking place August 5th through 8th. Submissions are open now and will be accepted through the end of June. For more information and to submit your project, visit westsoundfilmfestival.com and stay tuned right here for festival news and interviews. Well, our guest today knows a thing or two about filmmakers. Scott Iman is the author or co-author of 15 books with a new book due out this fall. And these include Empire of Dreams, The Epic Life of Cecil B. DeMille, Lion of Hollywood, The Life and Legend of Louis B. Mayer, and Print the Legend, The Life and Times of John Ford. Scott also penned the bestseller John Wayne and with actor Robert Wagner, the bestsellers Pieces of My Heart and You Must Remember This. He also wrote Hank and Jim, The 50-Year Friendship of Henry Fonda and James Stewart, and our subject in segment one, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. Scott was formerly the literary critic at the Palm Beach Post, writes book reviews for the Wall Street Journal, and 
has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Chicago Tribune. So, Scott, you've written about the lives and careers of some of the biggest names from the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, Matt and I are big fans of many of your subjects, like Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne. Uh, and there's a certain mystique about that area of uh, that era of show business that keeps drawing us back to it, and so many others. With so many biographies written about many of these great towns, who do you choose to pursue a project? Is it um, personal interest? Is there something else that drives uh, which projects you take on? Well, it's someone I have to be interested in. And it's some, to be perfectly frank, it's someone that I have to feel hasn't been done justice in previous books. I mean, by this, by this time in 2021, every first ranked movie star of that era has had a book written about them. And I've almost certainly read that book. And I mean, there's also has to be of, of, of personal contact in terms of what, I, what, the, what about them interests me. Uh, I don't do, especially, you know, now at my age, I don't take on assignments. You know, there's, I mean, I remember Kevin Brownlow. I was, I was flouncing around for a subject and Kevin Brownlow said out of nowhere, he said, do Lubitsch. Lubitsch would be fun. Yeah. Because uh, it, it never occurred to me. And a light, almost literally a light bulb went over my head. And he was right. Lubitsch was extraordinary fun. So you work with Robert Wagner on his autobiography, Pieces of My Heart, published in mm-hmm. 08. And again, with him on You Must Remember This, The Life and Style in Hollywood's Golden Age in 2014. Uh, tell us about how that project, both projects, really came about and uh, what it was like chronicling a career alongside the subject himself, contrasted with writing a straight biography. Right. Oh, it was fascinating. It was, a, it was a, 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 an accident of the most benign, delightful sort. With, I, I had no way of knowing this. RJ had been thinking about writing a memoir, but he hated most of the Hollywood memoirs he read. Uh, and he happened to read my biography of Louis B. Mayer called Line of Hollywood. And he was struck by it because he knew most of the people in the book. He knew Irene Mayer Selznick. He knew uh, L.B. Mayer's daughter. Later on, after we met, he said, what you did, he said, I recognize those people in your writing about. Hmm. And uh, so we were, we were just without knowing it, we were on the same page. And it was a delightful partnership. And we've remained very good friends. We talk every week, sometimes several times a week. Uh, RJ's doing very well up in Aspen. Uh, he's now 91 and uh, looking forward to shooting an episode of NCIS uh, in the near future. Wow, cool. Great. In the Cary Grant book, you've got over literally six pages of bibliographic references. Mm-hmm. You know, so writing a, a book like this or any of the other ones, especially the amount of detail you go into, has to be like detective work. So when you, when you choose a subject from a reference perspective, do you go and, and try to get all the references you can about the about the subject or is it you know you build the the outline of the book and then you go get the references as you as you need them well it's a it's a different it's a slightly different process than it used to be there are fewer people to talk to now if you're going to be writing about people in the 30s 40s and 50s there are just many fewer of them are on the ground fewer of that generation of filmmakers and actors and actresses are on the ground so if you're going to write about the period it's more a question of library research than of person to person. That said, people are still writing books about the Civil War and World War II and everybody's dead. So it's just a question of finding new material and reinterpreting that material. I mean, when I did the Lubitsch book, I probably talked to probably 35 or 40 people who knew Ernst Lubitsch, for instance, who were still, they were all 85 years old, 80 to 85 years old, but they were there. 
were I to do that book today, I'd be down to three, two or three, maybe. And it would become a much dry, less joyous experience because the joy of that book and of some of the other early books was in uh, sitting with someone and having them tell a story, and, which becomes a eureka moment, you know, where there, it's, it's more than just a story. It actually indicates some, some facet of the personality. That said, I, I always find, even with Cary Grant, I found uh, uh, a fair number of people. And if I had a eureka moment on the Cary Grant, it probably came from Walt O'Day. Walt it ret can retrospectively analyze this guy that he knew. And we had a very long, very searching uh, interview about Cary Grant and Cary Grant's close friendship with his father, Clifford O'Dess. Because on the surface, they have nothing in common. But they were best friends, best Hollywood friends. Uh, Odette's had uh, a group of New York friends, Lee Strasberg, Elia Kazan, that group. But in Hollywood, and Odette spent a great deal of time in Hollywood because he needed money all the time. Uh, Grant was Grant and he were very, very tight. And the bond between them essentially was that they were both primarily dissatisfied with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so their, their, their dissatisfaction with themselves brought them together. But each of them had this kind of ability to stand outside themselves, look at themselves and say, no, I don't think so. Not good enough. Not good enough. But you have to ask yourself, okay, now, if there are two or three lousy books about this person, how do I avoid writing the third or fourth lousy book about this person? What, what can I bring to the party? What project has been the most fun for you as an author? Uh, and you said that being able to sit down with a lot of these folks who knew the subjects is is really rewarding. Do you have a favorite person that you've written about, a favorite subject out of the 15, 16 books you've authored or co-authored? Sure. Yeah, I, I, can, I, I can't tell you what, what's the best book I've written. I can tell you what the books, what I most, the books I most enjoyed writing. Yeah. The Lubitsch book and the DeMille book, by, by far, by far. The Lubitsch book, because he was part of a generation like Billy, with, along with Billy Wilder, Robert Siedmach, William Wyler, all the Germans and the Austrians that came to Hollywood uh, in the wake of Hitler. And they were all the people that I spent time with research talking to in Hollywood. They all had this wonderful quality of being truly alive intellectually and emotionally, even though they were all very elderly. They were all in their 80s. Some of them were 80. Some of them were 90. Uh, but they were all absolutely plugged in uh, to the world around them. And that was just such a joy because it gave me insight into that entire generation and why those movies, why their movies are so remarkable then and are so remarkable now. The Mill, for an entirely different reason. I always liked it. I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a great silent film director, magnificent silent film director. And truly one of the architects of, of Hollywood. Without DeMille, there is no Hollywood. But with every, bio, with every subject, there are always blank spots. There are always areas where you'd like to be able to ask them why something happened. And you can't answer that question because there's no documentation. Right. There's nothing there. And so you, you, you can suppose you can, you can when, you, when you do something like that, you, I always tell the reader, what might have happened is this, you know. But you can't really come down with any definitive uh, 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 verdict. DeMille kept everything. His father's love letters to his mother's survive. DeMille's love letters to his wife survive. He kept everything. Every, every scribble on a notepad hmm. was preserved. 
because he was Cecil B. DeMille and he had this huge ego and he realized that he was, he realized he was historically crucial in the history of Hollywood. Everything was kept. So there were no blank spots where I had to ask myself, why did this happen? It was just a question of finding the documentation that explained why something happened, why DeMille left Paramount, why he went back to Paramount, why this, why that. It was all there. So I just simply had this profusion of material. Uh, it's the only time I've ever had too much material. I realized very quickly I could write two volumes on DeMille. Hmm. No, I don't. I, I didn't want to write two volumes on DeMille. And yeah. I don't think anybody wanted to read two <laughs> volumes. But I could have. I could have. The density of material was sufficient that I could have written two volumes. Uh, two volumes about DeMille. And that's the only time that's ever happened. The only time it's ever happened. It was like writing about Winston Churchill, yeah. where it's all there. Mm -hmm. You know, there are no, you, you don't have to make any educated guesses. Well, Scott, this has been great. Uh, before we uh, sign off, could you give us some information about the upcoming paperback release of the Cary Grant book? Uh, it's coming out in October. It's, it's same thing, same, same format, same cover, different blurbs. <laughs> uh, you know, from, from the reviews, I've got another book coming out almost at the uh, same time simultaneously from running press. It's a history of Daryl Zanuck and 20th century Fox. Oh, cool. Uh, it's called uh, 20th century Fox, uh, the studio, uh, I think the studio that Daryl Zanuck built or something along those lines. Uh, it's uh, I'm kind of in the, in the, in the position of an air traffic controller. I have different projects like airplanes circling the board. <laughs> I, I bring them, I bring them in, in the, in, in some rough order. Uh, so I've actually got uh, uh, two books coming out uh, this year, the paperback of Cary Grant and, and the uh, Daryl Zanuck slash Fox book. Well, I was going to ask actually uh, one more question then speaking of all the projects, do you have potentially a, a bucket list of projects uh, of subjects that you'd like to tackle? There's one book I'd, I'm kind of intellectually drawn to, but I don't know if I'd really enjoy it <laughs> emotionally, <laughs> but there, it, 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 there's no good book on him, on this person. I'm not going to mention his name. There's no good book on him. And I think it's a real flaw in the, uh, in the literature. Uh, and I'm kind of tempted. I just don't know if I'd enjoy the process because it's going to, it would take four years, maybe five years. And uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure I want to dive into that particular battlefield. Um, no, there's, uh, uh, I've, uh, but you know, I never thought I'd write a book about Louis B. Mayer and I had a great time writing about Louis B. Mayer. And that was another book that was suggested to me. That was not my idea. It was my editor at Simon Schuster who just, because we were sitting in his office, we were both looking out the window, trying to come up with an idea, trying to come up with a book. And he swiveled in his chair and leaned over the table, the desk and said, Louis B. Mayer. And I said, really? He said, yeah, Louis B. Mayer. Now, the reason he said that was because he just had a successful book published, a memoir by Esther Williams. And there was, of course, a lot about Louis B. Mayer and MGM in the Esther Williams book. Uh, so he was interested in Louis B. Mayer <laughs> because of, of this book. I didn't know if I was interested in Louis B. Mayer. But the first person I called was Lillian Ross, who wrote Picture, a wonderful book about the, the transition period between Mayer and Dory Sherry. And she gave me a couple of thoughts. She gave me. Betty Compton and E.L. Green's phone numbers and some other phone numbers. And she called Mayer a wonderful old pirate. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a wonderful old pirate's a good subject for a book. It's a great title. It's a, it, is a, it is a great title. I may use it someday. But that's actually, that was the first call I made tentatively because I wasn't at all sure I wanted to do the book. 
And it was, I had a great time doing that book because he was a wonderful old pirate, you know? Uh, so I'm, I've learned not to prejudge. I've learned not to say, oh God, no, I'm, I, I would never do that. There are, there's one or two books. I'd like to write about a woman. The first book I ever wrote was about Mary Pickford. And it was the last woman I wrote about. And I'm not happy about that. Uh, I would really like to write about a woman before I, before I hang it up uh, or it's hung up for me. So I'm kind of looking around for, for, for a topic, actually. I would love to know more about Lucille Ball as a force in Hollywood. We all know her as a comedian, um, but as, as an owner of Desilu, as, as a you know, force of nature that she was during that time period. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. And, and yeah, that, and for my friend Bob Osborne, of course, was under contract with Desilu uh, as a young, uh, a young actor in the 60s. And he adored her. He would tell wonderful Lucille Ball stories. And I would listen. I haven't actually thought about Lucia, Lucy. That's not a terrible idea at all. That's not a terrible idea at all. But I'm, I, I would like to write more about women. I think that's a, if you look at my roster of books, there's 16 books and 15 of them are about men. And I'm not really that guy. That's an accident. That's an accident of career choices, I guess. I really would like to write more about women for the, the remainder of my life than uh, that I have up to this point. Well, we'd love to get you back on. I don't think there's anybody out there who knows more about a subject than an author. Uh, it's just, the book that you've written about Cary Grant is about what, five, 600 pages? Close to six. Close to six. Yeah, this guy knows Cary Grant, and uh, I can tell you personally, really enjoying uh, the book. I've been reading the ebook version, and I have the hard copy out underneath my TV to show off to everybody. And uh, it's just really enjoyable, really easy to read, like Greg said. And I'm envious of whoever narrated the audiobook version because it's just a, a breeze uh, and a joy to read. Thanks for the time, guys. Look forward to talking to you again. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Well, thank you again to our guest, Scott Iman. You can find his latest book and the subject of today's show, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise, along with the rest of Scott's impressive body of work everywhere fine books are sold. And follow him on Twitter and Facebook at at Scott Iman one so that's at S-C-O-T-T-E-Y-M-A-N, number one. And they're all linked in the show notes, of course. And join us next week, Friday, May 21st, when we'll welcome back to the show Tracy Gossel. Tracy is the founder of the Film Preservation Society and author of The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks. Fairbanks was best known for his swashbuckling roles in silent films, including The Thief of Baghdad, Robin Hood, and The Mark of Zorro, and spent the early part of his career making comedies. Along with being an accomplished actor, Fairbanks was also a screenwriter, director, producer, and a founding member of United Artists alongside wife Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, and D.W. Griffith. We're looking forward to learning more about this legend of early Hollywood and his lasting impact on the film industry with Tracy, and that's coming up next Friday, May 21st. And remember, Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. And we'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. So until we're treading the boards together again, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us here on Heilman and Haver. 